Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. We are very, very excited for this episode. Uh, because we have a huge name, and her name is Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Uh, Dr. Finlayson Fife, why don't you give us a little bit of a little bit of a background as to who you are, and and the work that you do, and where we can find you? Sure. Uh, so I I live here in Chicago, and I'm a therapist and coach and instructor, and I work uh, primarily with LDS individuals and couples around the goals of creating more intimate marriages. And that is both emotionally intimate and sexually intimate. I wrote my dissertation on LDS women and sexual agency. So that's how I kind of, you know, I was always interested in helping people in their marriages. That was always a kind of an early interest, but this issue of sexuality and sexual intimacy and how to create really joyful partnerships is the work I care about in both how our theology supports that, how some of our cultural traditions impede that. You know, I've been quite devoted to helping Latter-day Saints on this front because it it matters to me to kind of live up to the best in our theology. Oh, that's awesome. We're bringing you onto the show today to talk a little bit about how to suck less at being a spouse. Husbands and wives, I'm sure there isn't a, you know, a huge delineation as, you know, LDS men do this, LDS women do this, though there probably are you know, some correlations and some, and some causes. But again, that's mm-hmm. what, kind of what we want to talk about today. We all want to have that joy that the gospel brings. And that is a huge part of that is within our marriage. So mm-hmm. um, if you could solve the ant, like if you could solve this question for us, how do we suck less at being, <laughs> uh, at being, at being husbands and, and our listeners uh, to, to be spouses? We want to be well. true to the uh, title mm-hmm. of the episode, I yeah. guess. So. Just, just answer that question for us, if, if you could. Uh, very succinctly. No, I'm just kidding. I kind of do have an answer, but the one thing is that one way to suck less is to just tolerate that you are going to suck. Um, and by tolerating it, then you can know it and know in what way you do and get busy addressing it. Because often what works against us is some fantasy that if we're good people, we won't ever suck um, <laughs> or that we feel defensive about seeing ourselves honestly. And that's one of the fastest ways to truly suck at being a spouse. <laughs> is to think you're, you're, you're amazing and, uh, and, and, and totally perfect. So embracing, embracing that we suck is a, is a good starting place. Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we do mm-hmm. that? Like what mm-hmm. kind of things... Do we need to change in our mindsets to get started along this path? Because that's a hard thing, Dr. Finlayson Five. Come on. It is. I mean, first of all, I think that because a lot of us link our value with some idea of perfectionism, that if you're really good, you're going to be righteous or you're going to basically rise above our human state, our fallen state. And that's just, I think, a immature read of our theology, because really, we're here in a process. We have the atonement because we need that process. We need, we are inherently fallible. And so the more that we can accept that that is true, while not letting it interfere with our sense of mattering and our sense of being uh, inherently valuable, the more that we can just you know, see ourselves honestly, repent, change, grow, develop, and see that as normal rather than aberrant. 
you know, a lot of us, I think it was uh, Adam Miller who talks about the idea that grace is not God's backup plan. It is the plan. That is that we inherently just need grace because that's the process that we are inherently engaged in. How do we balance that with the need for self-improvement? Well, I actually think it doesn't interfere with self-improvement. I think it actually facilitates it. It's the people that can't handle seeing their flaws that are least able to develop and change because they're so afraid of or defensive or decimated by the idea that they're that they're doing something wrong. And so it's actually an act of love to see ourselves honestly enough and strive. A lot of us think we wouldn't strive if we accept ourselves. It only our striving only is a function of our self-hatred. And I actually think our self-loathing interferes in that process. Yeah, I, I would agree with that 100% that the uh, self-loathing is, that's, that's probably the hardest part. This is the toughest part to get over. If I could just use myself as a personal example, when I make a mistake, say I make a mistake in our marriage um, that I know mm-hmm. that my wife is going to be upset about. So mm-hmm. my, my first instinct is to feel shame about it mm-hmm. and then beat myself up over it and mm-hmm. then kind of pretend, pretend it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And then just think to myself, well, if I never make a mistake again, things will be okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Knowing that the brain is, is, pl- is pliable, is changeable. Mm-hmm. Where, what's, what's a practice that, that I should start? Say, say I, cause I know I'm going to make a, another mistake. Like what, mm-hmm. say with the next mistake, what should I be trying to uh, train my brain to do if that? Well, I, I think that we have to unhook the idea of our, our perfectionism is, is somehow or this sort of being infallible is linked to value. I think that's a spiritually immature idea, but one that really gets reinforced culturally a lot. I remember thinking as an eight-year-old, like, why don't they postpone baptism to like, say, 80? Because then <laughs> you can just get that wiped clean. And then, you know, you had all that time to develop and kind of know how to do things well. Then you can like not make any mistakes from say 80 till, you know, 80 until you die. That was like a kind of misunderstanding of the process is essential. The process is necessary. So it's just rewiring this thinking that somehow you can develop any other way. And this issue of approval and validation is is something that we as human beings really like, we're really drawn to. It's easier to get validation from our spouse when we don't disappoint them. So part of it is we know we're interfering with how other people may see us or the our desire to be seen in a particular way. And that's you know, why we feel so ashamed is we know that we're going to disappoint or we're going to be seen as fallible. And we have a hard time sustaining our sense of mattering and our sense of value and staying linked to who we want to be and who we want to become because we're terrified at losing that immediate approval. You know, we have to lessen our dependency on that approval for us to be honest and trustworthy people, but also to have a stronger internal reference and integrity reference rather than a approval and validation reference point. And is that primarily approval from our spouse or our peers or uh, our God or what? how does that play out? 
anyone and everyone. And the more that the person matters to you, the, the more important it can be to us to get their approval. So the people that really matter to you, it's often the hardest to be honest with them if you're dependent upon their validation. You know, when we start out in life, we are entirely validation dependent. There's no other way to do it. You're looking to your parents and peers and caregivers to give you an idea about who you are and whether or not you matter. And you are psychologically dependent. It's just fundamental to being human because we have such complex brains that we can't sustain our sense of self. We can sustain ourselves physically much earlier than we can sustain ourselves psychologically. That validation system is an easy way to internalize culture, internalize the rules of engagement, to understand what it is to belong to the group. To be able to function psychologically as an adult, though, you have to grow out of that need for approval. And, and that there's nothing wrong with that need for approval, but you have to internalize it enough to have a stronger self-reference and an internalized sense of morality and an internalized sense of what's ideal, which I think fits with our theology. But that is that you're, when, when I think when Christ says, lose yourself to find yourself, what he's talking about is lose your need for approval in order to find your strength. And again, there's nothing wrong with approval, but if you run your life trying to get it, you'll have a very hard time being a trustworthy person. Do you think our religion or our faith uh, does a good job of facilitating that, or do you think we struggle? Well, because we're made up of human beings, we struggle because we, the best in our theology, a lot of people don't yet understand because they haven't internalized it themselves. So they, they use the very systems that they still operate by, which are often validation systems, conformity. You know, even obedience is often delivered in a framing of validation seeking and reward, not from an integrity frame and doing what in your heart, you know, is right. Um, and so we often do it like if you obey, then you'll get the reward of blessings or, you know, everything will work out for you. We use those kinds of models to get people to do what makes us comfortable, which maybe reinforces our choices or makes us feel okay, but doesn't necessarily facilitate our maturation as a group and isn't necessarily the best understanding of our faith. When you said that, I automatically thought of the, uh, the, the like canister of candy that my bishop always keeps at his desk. Mm. And I think like, yeah, that's kind of inadvertently like a, a reward, right? <laughs> And we go, <laughs> yes, you come visit him. Right, get some yeah. <laughs> yeah. After you confess your sins. That's right. <laughs> right, exactly. Or the refreshments, like, you know, yeah. a lot of times that's why we're going to the meetings. Is <laughs> that ice cream sandwich refreshments is, afterwards, yes. Yeah, is delectable. <laughs> oh, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I think that this conversation about, you know, about our faith and about validation comes from our need to say, hey, we, we, we've done a couple of episodes about, uh, you know, mercy and grace and where it comes from God. You know, like our faith is kind of dependent upon what does God think about me? At least that's a lot of things mm -hmm. that I've learned as a youth, you know, like mm -hmm. my only approval 
you know, should be, what does my heavenly father think about me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that in turn comes of, you know, like, what do my kids think about me? What do my spouse, what does my spouse think about me? Mm-hmm. How do we start to break free? What are some things that our listeners do, hypothetically speaking, and not necessarily speaking of myself? Just kidding. I'm totally thinking, speaking of myself. <laughs> how do we how do we gain that sense of self in terms of, again, I know that my validation that, you know, what does God think about me? It's a very, I feel like something that's very important to me, but I also struggle to find, you know, what are my strengths? Where do I really stand as a person in my development? And then where do I go from here? Well, I think there's nothing wrong with being concerned about what God thinks about you. If your view of God is really true. Um, and that is to say that from, you know, my sort of my early conception of God was more of an expression of my development when I was, say, eight or nine years old, really cared about me following rules, like really, you know, was preoccupied with whether or not I would obey. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is to say, you know, our ideas about God evolve as we evolve. And it's much different to want the validation of a peer than the validation of God, because God represents what God desires is and should be an expression of your highest self. That is to say, the thing that will set you free, the thing that will allow you to embody and be uh, godly in your own right, not under God, but to have embodied and internalized godliness. And so I think that relational aspect of our theology can be very valuable, but it's less about approval and tell me I'm enough as much as I want to, that God represents and cares about you living up to your highest self because of your own freedom, your own joy, and your own ability to be a force for good in the world, but not so much about approval seeking and tell me I'm enough but how to expand goodness and how to be freer within oneself. That makes sense. It's yeah. different than I want my wife to not be upset with me yeah, sure. uh, so that I look good in her eyes. It, so mm-hmm. in that same vein, I guess it's important to us to like consider how our spouse thinks about us, but you're saying mm-hmm. it's not based upon approval of who we are as people. We should find that value within ourselves to begin with. Yeah. That's our, that's our work. Exactly. But you want you want your spouses, you want to know how they really think because it's an important understanding of who you are and what your actual impact is. So it's not about turning off other people as an important source of information about you. Mm. But it's not about I need you to say I'm okay because I can't handle you thinking differently or I'm going to be defensive if you don't see me the way I want to be seen or you know, pressure you to, to tell me I'm sufficient. The information is there to help you see yourself honestly. So a spouse's invalidation often holds a lot of information that you need, even though it doesn't necessarily feel good to get it. This is one of the things I say in one of my online courses is that we, we imagine when we get married that we're locking in somebody that's going to tell us we're awesome, that's going to tell us we're amazing and wonderful irrespective of how immature and indulgent we are, right? (laughs) And that's often, so few of us are getting married in order to love someone. We're getting married to lock in someone to love us. And then when they don't do it, we give them feedback. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) You have, like, 
like just basically pegged me in my marriage like to get like because i was like man i feel so good when i'm around my wife and she's so nice uh, like i want to be yeah. with this person forever you know and i don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing sure. but i want i no. i what you're saying i think is ringing true is that i wanted her to say how awesome i am for time and all yeah. eternity yeah absolutely okay absolutely and that's why most of us get married is yeah. we imagine that's what we're gonna get where we we say we want partner love but in our core immature selves we want parental love in a partner that is, you'll forgive me, you'll accept me, you'll think I'm adorable like my parents did when I was two. And, you know, I want that unconditionality rather than what I think the best in a marriage commitment is, is promising God the kind of person we will be relative to this other child of God, our, our marriage partner. And that takes a lot more courage and commitment. And it's about marriage you know, marriage can be where you lock somebody in and you exploit the commitment to not have to grow, or you can relate to marriage as a mechanism to grow yourself up, to get feedback about who you are and where you're immature or where you give yourself a pass because the marriage is designed to expose it. And if you can relate to marriage as that, then you won't resent it when it exposes you to yourself. So I'm curious, in our theology, what role does our kind of devotion to our faith play in that? Because I think we're all on a different path, right? And, mm -hmm. or at least at a different place on our path, maybe. Mm -hmm. And how does that devotion or perceived devotion from your spouse or your family kind of play into those issues that we've been talking about? It's kind of a big question. I would say it depends a little bit on, we can relate to our faith in ways that in pair intimacy and we can relate to our faith in ways that facilitate intimacy which which would you like me to start with do you want me to start with i think our, our podcast is definitely pro intimacy yes okay so let's let's talk about how we can facilitate intimacy. <laughs> right well okay but what i mean is is that we can well we can relate to faith much like the sadducees and pharisees in ways that interfere with knowing and being known right and interfere with sexual intimacy and we can then relate to it in ways that foster our development. What I'm going to say is you're going to be more capable of intimacy the less you depend on validation. And sexual intimacy is an expression of intimacy and also linked to this issue of validation. If we are validation dependent, which let's face it, we all are on some level or, or another, but, but the more we are, the more we're going to be looking for that approval from our spouse. We're going to be relating to the strictures of our faith or the principles as ways of earning approval in our own minds or, or in the minds of the people around us. We're obeying the rules. We're reading the scriptures to get blessings. We're doing the things that will earn us points in the eyes of the people around us or our spouse. That's intimacy avoidant. There's nothing wrong with doing those things, but often if it's to get approval, it's intimacy avoidant. That is, I don't want to be known. I want to be seen. I want to be validated as legitimate. Or we can use and relate to our faith to increase our tolerance of intimacy, which I think is a, the best understanding of Christianity and of our faith, which is it facilitates our ability to know and be known and facilitates our ability to love. So we're using our faith whether that's reading the scriptures or going to the temple or any, any faith practice is designed to increase your honesty, your humility, your willingness to be real, your ability to love. 
if you're using your faith for any other purpose than increasing your ability to love and be loved, then it's about validation and it's cheap. Where do you see? So we've been talking a lot about theory, you know, about, uh, you know, changing our mindset and where we where we sit with ourselves or we sit with our spouse where we sit with God. What are some practical things that you see strong LDS marriage people in strong LDS marriages do? What are some practices that you see in in LDS marriages that you think that that culturally we struggle with in terms of practice mm-hmm. and behavior? Well, I'll start with the struggle and then I'll go to what I think stronger couples do. But I, like I think it. yeah, I think the what we often we all would say we want intimate marriages. I mean, I don't think I've met somebody who's like, you know what, I'm not that interested in a <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, but I think what a lot of us don't understand is that when we say we want an intimate marriage is what we want is to be known and accepted. We want the idea. I want you to accept me and to validate who I am. And we use intimacy to explain that. I want your sexual validation. I want your right. emotional validation. And I want to feel, you know, me and accept me thoroughly, just like my parents did when I was two. Okay. So I think that that's what we often say we want, but very few of us actually want to be known flaws and all. We just want our spouse to know and see the good parts and go blind to the bad parts in the name of love. So when we relate to our theology in a bad way, I think we do it from we're we're, we we say we want intimacy, but really we want the safety of a role and we want Mm -hmm. to stay dependent on the other person. So for example, a lot of us are instinctively creating role-based marriages that are not that intimate. So I want you to be a certain thing for me and I'll be a certain thing for you. That's role-based and intimacy avoidant. So for example, okay, you're going to be the the man. Okay, you that means you need to be strong. Don't show me too much vulnerability. Manage my anxieties in the world, provide for me economically and emotionally, be spiritually stronger lead the family, lead me, because that makes me feel safer. But then you have to adore me. You have to think I'm amazing and you need to provide me the happiness, okay? Because I'm, I'm turning my life over to you in a sense as the woman. The woman, the upside for her is she gets a sense of safety. She gets a sense of protection. And then this idea that she's not leading out, but she's backing up. So that is to say she's backing up the man. So that is, I, I'll be your support and your I'll be the selfless one in the background and that serves me because then I feel needed or I feel important or I feel like I don't have to tolerate as much anxiety now that's a kind of typical traditional partnership and a lot of people have to say like maybe that maybe there's not an upside for the woman but a lot of times people don't want the exposure of having to take their lives on and so they they create these Okay, I'll I'll attach my cart to your horse, but you need to make my life good. Now, those are both dependent positions, either needing to be needed or being needy. The man's role is needing to be needed largely. I'm speaking overly stereotyped right now, Mm -hmm. but in hers is needy. Those are about we each have respective roles. They give us a sense of security. They facilitate a dependency in us. And that is psychologically more intuitive and feels safer but is dependent upon the 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 liabilities and weaknesses of the man not being exposed and the strengths and capacity and superiorities of the woman not being revealed too much because that's a coherent 
and dependent system. To actually grow into a true partnership, you have to be more able to sustain yourself psychologically, to be more able to integrate your strengths, capacity, and limitations, and who you are uniquely, and to be knowable to yourself and the other person. Or like in the sexual realm, you have to be able to integrate your sexuality within yourself. You have to be at peace with its existence, with who you are as a sexual being, and to be willing to be knowable in that way. We even teach a model of kind of getting your spouse to legitimize your sexuality rather Mm -hmm. than teaching people how to be stronger within themselves to be capable of sharing themselves in a marriage. I feel super theoretical in this podcast. I get a little more practical. If it's all right, let's can we talk about some practical steps? Like, say yeah. you are in a struggling marriage, or you do the th- you, you very much just want validation. Uh, how? But you know that you want to get to a true partnership what, in, in a marriage mm-hmm. in which you are known and truly want to like you're open to being known. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So say you have the, you have a desire to get there. What? Like what, what are some of those practical steps? One practical step is to never tell anything ever again that's not true about yourself or about how you perceive your spouse. Now, I don't mean just vomiting up any bit of information designed to be hurtful or anything like that. But that is to say, if there's areas that you know you're hiding from yourself or hiding your spouse from knowing about you, because they'll bring conflict, because they'll bring potential invalidation, because you know it will stress your spouse out, but you know that it's interfering with the honesty in the marriage, that you allow what's true to be knowable. And a lot of times that means believing in your spouse's, you know, I was just talking to somebody a couple today where he's protected a lot of information from her because he felt like it was his divine job to do that, to protect her from truth about himself. And so we kind of stuffed it away for a long time, but it was actually eroding the honesty and the intimacy of the marriage. But he felt like it had like this protective demand was part of being a good man and not seeing that it was kind of fundamentally condescending to keep what's true from her and allow her to make choices in the face of knowing him and knowing reality more completely. So, you know, so that's one practical thing is to look at where do I, where do I hedge on who I am or what I think and feel? Usually we're doing that because we want approval. We want our spouse to imagine we are someone different than we are. And we don't want the conflict or the invalidation that will come from it, but it interferes with the marriage growing into something more honest. How do we balance that? Because uh, while you're thinking about that, I think because I'm yeah. I'm all about it being honest, and you know my wife will testify to that. I'm probably too honest. What? Because I often think of myself like, well, you know, if I if I see in myself deficiencies, and mm-hmm. so I try and curb those deficiencies. Where does that mm-hmm. play? Because I'm trying. I'm I'm genuinely trying to be a better person. It's not me trying to be deceitful. It's me mm-hmm. trying to improve. What's the what's the delineation between that and what you were well, talking about about being wife, dishonest? Would your wife understand that? Like if you were like, look, I'm often not, you know, I'm often kind of curbing some impulse or anger, or I could say this thing, but I think it's better not to say it. Meaning, if you were to explain your mind to your wife, would she be like, oh yeah, that makes sense? Sure. Yeah. No. She's, oh, yeah. she's very. And I would say that's not. Right. And I would say that. Well, that is what I'm trying to say is, would she think you're withholding information that she needs? 
Meaning it doesn't mean you have to say everything that ever goes into your head or mind to be in an honest marriage. It's that you're not withholding information that interferes with the spouse's ability to really know you and to be able to make good decisions for herself or himself. So it, it doesn't mean that there's no ever a private moment, but that you're not keeping the, your spouse from knowing who you are in a kind of fundamental way. Right. Because the thing I struggle with a little bit in, and this is kind of a broader conversation, it's not just about marriage. I think it's, it's, it's even, you know, about who we are as children of God. This, this idea that like, well, I am who I am that goes around a lot. It's not really yeah. the point of the gospel. Like we're supposed to be progressing and improving and becoming better. But there are things about us that are unique, that are individual, that are, there's nothing wrong with us being like that. And so finding the balance between those two things is something I personally struggle with a, a little bit. Can you give me just a little bit more of an example? Because I don't know if I quite follow. Yeah, no, I get that a lot. It's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all have individual personalities and those uh, personality traits for me, like, actually, I, one thing that I'd like to improve is I, I think I mumble too much, you know? And so mm -hmm. I'd like to improve that's kind of a skill, right? Mm -hmm. But also, like, I have desires to, like, go deep into conversations about things mm -hmm. that often tire people. And I don't think that's something to be ashamed of. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's, yeah. but, but it's, it's laborious for other people. And it's, well, it's kind of who mm -hmm. I am. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's yeah. not necessarily something I need to change, but maybe me mumbling, I do need yeah. to change, right? Kind of a thing. Yeah. But, but what I would say is that's not dishonest. That's just regulating your behavior in a way that's building, a, that's managing this tension between being true to yourself and true to others. And I think that's fundamental to any good relationship is managing that tension. Like, oh, yes, I must, I might just absolutely love talking about theoretically abstract concepts, but it's not necessarily enjoyable for my spouse. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me, but as a function of caring about her, uh, you know, I will only do that to her once in a while. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and, and I think that's just an act of integrity. You see what I mean? Like, sure. You know, some of the things I talk about in my online courses, and it's fundamental to differentiation theory is that we, as human beings, want two things, and they're always operating in us. And that is, we want to belong to others, that we want to belong to our group. We want to feel that we matter, that we are a valuable part of the larger group. This is really fundamental to human beings, or, or attachment that we talk about a lot. But we also want to belong to ourselves. We want to belong to our sense of agency, our, you know, fulfilling the measure of our specific creation. Like, how do I be true to me. And when we're immature and validation is running the show, it often feels like you get one or the other in intimate relationships. Either we do what I want or we do what you want, right? And so either I'm going to belong to me, but the relationship's under strain, or I'm going to do what you want, which makes you happy with me and makes the relationship be peaceful. But then I feel like I'm giving up too much of me. And the more we mature, the more able we are to handle that tension wisely, to be true enough to ourselves and true enough to our, our relationships that all thrive, right? So if you think of like the body of Christ metaphor, like I can, I'm a good appendix. Okay, well, that's not maybe the best one. <laughs> the one part of the body that's just... I'm infected and inflamed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly but you know if you know let's say you're you know i don't know the knee okay 
Well, you need to be true to your knee capacity to bless the body, but it's a way of being true to your specific gifts and capacities and, and ability. And it's a way being true to the group. If you need too much, you know, it's like the hand can't say, or I can't remember which one says, I have no need of thee or be like me. You actually interfere with the collective. So the body of Christ metaphor is really quite perfect because it's about that you need to be true to who you are in order to bless the group. But it doesn't mean you make everything about the knee at all times. It's like, how does the knee really bless the collective and be true to itself? And so the the more mature you get, the more that you see that these are two sides of the same coin, not in contradiction. So it is, I am being a better self to not always pull every conversation in the direction that I want, because I don't want to infect and interfere with my relationships or make everything about me. On the other hand, this is a valuable part of how I think and who I am. And so I don't want to erase this part of me just to have everybody never be, never, you know, have to think in a direction that's maybe not intuitive for them. And so how do I balance that with integrity? That's what wise action is. And a knee will never be a nose. Yeah, and shouldn't yeah. be. The knee should not be able to be expected to function like the nose. That's right. And if you're doing it because, you know, everybody the nose is so stuck up and thinks it's so awesome. And so you're trying to <laughs> you're trying to be the nose because you want the nose to accept you, you are actually self-betraying, but also betraying the the collective. You're betraying mm. the well-being of the group. And a lot of times we do this in marriage. We're trying to be what makes other people happy with us, makes our spouse happy, but actually undermining the stability of the marriage because we're not being true enough to ourselves in that marriage. You, you're the, like the LDS sex therapist. Like you, mm-hmm. you go on, you go on, uh, you know, shows, uh, you know, ask a Mormon sex therapist and all the things like that. So I mm-hmm. would be remiss to ask you not like a, a sexually spe- specific question. Oh, yeah. What sure. are some, what are some things uh, before we end? Like what are some some things with specifically that are sex related within LDS marriages that yeah. uh, that are good behaviors ones that are bad behaviors in terms of again being known and so there's a there's a few things so one thing i think is we have this kind of false tradition in our faith that's a borrow from the larger culture which is that sex is for men and good women don't really have desire or sexuality but they accommodate their husbands sexually so you know one of the things i wrote my dissertation on was this idea that well, as a collective, we are anxious about sex in general, mm-hmm. but we make sexual desire congruent with masculinity, but incongruent with femininity and goodness. And while we're anxious about men and sexuality, and we're afraid that their sexuality can take them off the rails and de- you know derail them spiritually and so on, we still see them as naturally sexual and that good women accommodate that sexuality as a way of keeping men from derailing spiritually. So that's a kind of implicit messaging that basically, if you love your husband as a woman, you're going to put up with his sexuality to keep him from being, to to keep him good. You know, that you're the one who will accommodate this natural man aspect of him. The problem with that is that it's an inherently dependent system. It's not about intimacy. It's about kind of managing a necessary evil. And it's not about coming to peace and integrating your God-given sexuality as a woman, as a man, knowing it enough to be able to love through it, to share yourself 
through this part of being human and to love and be loved through it. That's what most of us want is a sense of freedom and ability to be loved sexually or to be loved all the way through. But we want our spouse to give that to us. Men and women are both doing this. I want my husband to make my sexuality legitimate. I want my wife through her desire to make my desires legitimate. And so we've actually internalized and often promote a dependent system. That is, your sexuality is made legitimate by your future spouse's desire. Well, you're toast in our system when you do that, because first of all, women have no basis for legitimizing their husband's sexuality because they are anxious about it themselves. Right. So a lot of women are trying to maybe accommodate and manage his sexuality, but they have kind of sworn it off in their effort to feel like good women. And so men are often being accommodated, but not desired, which creates resentment and a sense of invalidation in the marriage. I'm speaking in the most stereotyped way, of course, of men Mm -hmm. being the high desire ones. But this is a setup for exactly what we end up so many couples coming to me experience. Yet our theology, I think, provides for a much deeper integration of our embodiment and our spirituality as being highly linked. But we, we can't keep teaching it in the way that we teach it, which is this necessary evil right. that you sort of manage it throughout marriage. Because when it gets related to in that way, it really undermines the foundation of the marriage. Because We want so much to be free in our marriages and we want so much to be desired. But our difficulty with being at peace with our embodiment and sensuality and sexuality interferes with what we all long for. You described this setup as women being the facilitators of their husband's sexuality uh, Mm -hmm. or maybe even tolerators of it mm, yes. uh, in, in many cases. Do you see that yeah. the other way around as well? That like men, when they're, they're the higher desire partner will facilitate mm-hmm. their spouse's lack of sexual desire and kind of deny that part of them in order to be seen as a good husband. Yes, no question. So there's some men that go about it in the entitled way, you know, like you're my eternal companion. You're supposed to do this. I have needs. Okay. Right. But then there's the other version, which is, you know, a lot of men are taught that, yeah, they may be naturally sexual, but sex is something a man does to a woman, not that a woman wants. And so sensitive men or men who haven't learned how to validate their desires or be at peace with their sexual natures are hoping their wife will want it or hoping she'll make it okay. But if not, then if I'm going to be a good man, I need to shut this whole thing down or just manage it inside of myself or not bring it to her and infect her with my sexual desires. And they're often married to people who have plenty of anxiety about sex themselves, and they're happy to have their husbands think that way. I think there's also situations in which the woman is wants to be wanted, but the husband is really ambivalent about desire and the intimacy of it and the exposure in it. And so he, you know, kind of doesn't want to be known in this way because he's not at peace with it. And so she's left feeling like, what's the matter with me that you don't want me? But really being able to be at peace with your sexual nature is a requires a certain amount of spiritual development. And what I mean is like psychological development to be okay with the weirdness of sexuality, with the embodied and sort of carnal aspect of it. What I mean by that is carnal is really means of the body Mm -hmm. that, that we are so much in this idea that that's antithetical to good and spiritual 
that a lot of us are never able to really be at peace with our sexual natures and are always trying to keep it at arm's length, hoping our spouse can make it okay. But because we haven't come to terms with it, aren't free to really share ourselves and know our spouse through it and therefore not able to create something really peaceful. A lot of people get through the act of sex as married partners, but it's not, but they resist how intimate it is because both are somewhat anxious about what they're doing. When I think about this issue, I think about how we're taught about sex as um, children and young adults Mm -hmm. and that in our church, how we we're we're so protective of the youth and trying to keep them chaste and then right. we don't really provide a bridge maybe no we don't and so Not what, even close. what do you what do you think is are some steps we can take to maybe overcome that well one thing is we have to stop using you know scare tactics around sexuality because i mean i think a lot of us get the idea that sex is really dangerous and so it's like a fire and you're going to play with fire And so even in the legitimized context of marriage, there's still this anxiety of like, but, you know, how is it now okay to play with fire? Like, aren't we kind of, you know, basically playing with something that's stronger than us? And I I think that's the wrong idea. I don't, I, I certainly think you can be destructive with sexuality. I think it's valuable to talk to youth about that fact that if you are indulgent with sexuality, meaning you're you're being exploitative or taking advantage of anyone through your sexuality, that is destructive. But to repress and deny your sexuality is also destructive. It's anti-spiritual. You're not accepting the gift that God gave you. And it's out of fear. And so that's also antithetical to peace. So we have to teach that, first of all, sexuality is meant to be integrated and used to create goodness in our life. It's meant to bless our lives and to bless the lives of those the person that we love down the road. So we need to first teach that. And then I think we need to, to not, that while it's a powerful language, it's not stronger than we are. And that is to say, we continue to be the agents and the choosers around sexuality. And when we teach otherwise that sex is ultimately stronger than us, you kind of make it true because you're so afraid of it that the fear and the anxiety ends up running the show. And that's often around compulsive behaviors. And I talk about a lot of times in the frame of food that if you make somebody really afraid of the fact that they like sweets, well, that's just normal. This is human. You know, of course, you're going to like sweets. The question is not whether or not you like them or that there's nothing wrong with you that you like them. The question is, how can I be in relationship to this pleasure in life that blesses my life and makes it better? Well, I'm probably not going to want to just only eat sweets because ultimately it that takes you to hell ultimately because you're not healthy and you don't it doesn't feel good anymore. It doesn't even taste good anymore if that's all you do. Right. So what's the relationship to that pleasure that would make my life richer, stronger, better, happier, and full of joy? Well, there's some integration of it. There's some moderation that's in it that's not about fear, but about wisdom. And it's very similar to sexuality. You can't go in either extreme without it bringing you to hell soon enough. And so how do you make choices around this pleasure that ultimately make you and your relationship stronger and richer? and happier. And that's the question we want our youth to be thinking about in their choices. And if it's not so, we shame it, you drive compulsivity. 
you drive fear and anxiety, just like you would with somebody who shame their desire for sweets. Soon enough, they'll be anorexic or bulimic because the anxiety is now running the show. So you have to facilitate youth and adults being the architects of their lives, the drivers, the deciders, and that it's an aspect of love of self and other to make choices that will ultimately bless your life. But that's not fear-based, that's agency-based and wisdom-based. That's really good. I really like that. Mm -hmm. This show isn't necessarily about you personally, but I think we'd be amiss to not ask a personal question about Mm -hmm. your own journey and how much of what you've experienced has kind of influenced what you um, think about all these subjects and how that has enriched your own faith. Well, what I would say is, as a young person, you know, I think the short answer is that I think that I knew two things were true. And then there was, that is to say, I, I knew that the, I knew God was real and that my faith was a very important part of my life. I also knew that everyone was too afraid of sexuality. And I don't even know why I knew it as a young person, but I just knew it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then I would go and hear these lessons and think, why is that teacher so freaked out about sex? So no, I didn't have any basis for that faith, yeah. but I just somehow understood there was a lot of fear that drove a lot of, of the messaging. And maybe I could just perceive the fear or perceive the anxiety and kind of trust it in something richer or better. And, and so I, I think I fortunately grew up in a family that valued inquiry and even unorthodox thought enough that I didn't feel that I couldn't sort of belong to my own questions and my own thoughts and jeopardize a sense of belonging, at least within my family. So I think I was just kind of um, a seeker as a young person. And I believed enough that God would tolerate that process and that it was a valuable one. So I think for me, it's often been about the, the very same tension of belonging to a group that matters to me to belong to while being true to something in myself and living in that tension has allowed me, you know, to become wiser, take the best in our faith and in our group and also hold it up against my most honest heart. And so that's just brought me to where I am. And, you know, I could probably speak to non LDS people, but I think I've cared a lot about what I see as a lot of truth in our faith that sometimes gets lost in the details and in the obedience focus that we often promote and then interferes with our freedom and our joy. Quickly, let's let talk about, uh, again, I know you do courses uh, and, and events mm-hmm. and things like that. Do you have anything coming up mm-hmm. that you'd like to talk to our, tell our listeners about? Yeah, everything's sold out currently, but we are doing a women's retreat in Oregon um, in September. We just came back from one that uh, was wonderful. And we're doing another one in September. And then we're doing a couple's retreat in November in Southern Utah, but that's also completely sold out with a long wait list. But we will probably be doing, you know, hoping that COVID cooperates um, ultimately, but hopefully be doing more live. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing how many times we've had to postpone and cancel things. I'm sure. Yeah. But, and then I have my online courses, which are, I have a couples uh, relationship course, couples sexual intimacy course, 
and then a self and sexual development course, both for men and for women. And Art of Desire is the women's course and Art of Loving is the men's course. And then a course on how to talk to your LDS kids about sex. So they're all drawing on this frame of development and growing out of our need for approval and validation in order to be more capable of love and intimacy, which is where all the joy and freedom lies. Well, excellent. Again, thank you so much for, for joining us. This was, this was so good. Um, thank you. We, if you will be back on the show, we would love to have you back uh, sometime sure. soon. So, Sure, I'd be happy to. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for so much for coming on. It was a great discussion. You're welcome. My pleasure. Great. All right, thanks, you guys. No, thank, thank you. you. Appreciate again it. later. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. So what, what did you guys, uh, what do you guys think? Broad takeaways. I thought it was interesting. I, I, I think it's, it's always fun to get not only someone else's point of view, but someone who has interacted with a lot of different people. Yeah. And so they can kind of broaden that because a lot of us, I think, are kind of either stuck in our own, not stuck, but I mean, we're, we, we see our own marriages, our own family dynamics, and maybe a little bit of those of our friends, but even then probably not that much. Right. And so just to have that perspective and to maybe see some solutions because we're, we're not that great at looking in the mirror effectively. And so to have someone just maybe say something helpful, I think is a good thing. Yeah. What spoke to you, Burgess? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I thought everything that she said about how to improve a relationship, like specifically being honest about yourself, yeah, you know, it it all related to repentance. You know, the steps that we could also take to have better relationship with our heavenly Father. Yeah, you know, that's 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 what I took away from it. Maybe that's and maybe that's a way to to practice improving ourselves with our spouses is to improve ourselves, improve our relationship with our with our Father in heaven is to. You know, the, what I was thinking, it was having a, a time where you sit down and you just try to be honest about yourself with your father in heaven. You know, the things that you like about yourself, the things that you don't like. And even I, I think Tyson, your example of I want to improve this. And then some people get bored, bored, I guess would be the right word or like, <laughs> you know, but but I, but I also want to keep doing this. But some people don't like it. You know, how, how you know, how do I balance these things? You know, right. I think those those conversations are very effective to have with your spouse. And if it's, if it's hard as it would be for me, it'd be really hard to, to be on, to be that honest, to just start with your father in heaven, just try it, try it there first. And I think as we improve that, our, the relationships around us will improve as well. Well, as I've been listening to Dr. Finlayson five for a long time, a lot of the, like the LDS marriage podcasts that I listen to a big topic is, you know, and I'm talking about intimacy, meaning, being known and knowing someone else. You know, I think a lot of times it bugs me when people use sex and intimacy like as interchangeable because they're completely different things. And I think the intimacy being, being known like who you truly are and knowing someone else for who they truly are and accepting that uh, is something that is really, really hard and challenging for, I guess, again, you guys have heard many end episodes where I am insecure with who I am. Uh, and it's hard for me to know who I am because, you know, I, maybe I don't even have an intimate relationship with myself that I don't really know myself well enough, not to mention, you know, being able to share that with someone else. So, but again, I think the, the way to, the, if I could sum up the episode, at least what I took from it is that in order to be intimate with someone, I mean, to get closer to someone, to improve it is not to accentuate where you are awesome. Or where you think you're awesome, 
but it's to uh, accept where you are, it, it, both good and bad, and then create something with that with someone else. I think we need to separate who we are culturally as a people with the actual ideal practice of our faith. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. So, but, go, but go on. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm eager to, to hear like, what do you mean? I just think we have to know, and I think she, she kind of uh, had a good example with the, with the Pharisee, you know, yeah. uh, topics, the validation, because I do think like I do, I'd never really thought about it before, but I do agree that the validation is counterproductive to our faith. You know, that we should have genuine desires to love, to be loved, um, and all that stuff. And this, the validation is a, is a, is a pride issue. Oh, for sure. Um, and so anything, and, and that can creep into our culture in a variety of ways. And we're all trying to seek after that ideal way to practice our faith, to become closer to the savior. But I think sometimes we miss the mark and that can be perpetuated, whether advertently or inadvertently. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to be open to saying the way we do things may not be the best. And maybe we need to think about doing them a different way. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, yep. It's a continual process. Our church is always progressing. Our culture is always progressing individually and as families, we're always progressing. We need to embrace that. And I think that to me was, was kind of a, a standout point. And I thought it was interesting how you brought up being open and accepting of who you are and the fair and being a hypocrite are the exact opposite things being in, you know, accepting who you are and, and your deficiencies, as long as your strengths, you know, you can work with that. But when you are being a hypocrite, meaning that you are trying to get people to think that you are more righteous than you really are, that is being, you're going to get stuck and pigeonholed into trying to get that validation from others. You can do the same things on opposite ends of the spectrum, but you'll get vastly different outcomes. Yeah. I mean, just go back to what we talked about King Benjamin, right? The uh, yep. come to term, coming to terms with our nothingness. That's just what we have to keep that in the front of our mind. You know, yep. we don't, we are nothing. It doesn't matter what we do, don't do, you know, we're nothing. Well, that's not very validating. You're not valid. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and found this information helpful, we ask that you rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from it. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, follow the link in the show notes below to find more information about her online courses, upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.